You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Man, it's so exciting to be back here. It's been, um, it's probably only been about two or three months since my family made the transition from King's Cross over to Life Park, but in like the calendar, church calendar, that seemed like two or three years. And we knew it was going to be hard for us because we were not just leaving a church, but we were leaving a church family. And I just want you to know it has been hard. We miss y'all and we love y'all and we pray for you often. On the other hand, God's been so good. Uh, We're in the process of building new relationships and new friendships And quite frankly, for me, I am um, at a season professionally and spiritually that I just am seeing myself be used in ways that I had not been able to imagine just even six months ago, certainly not six years ago, where where I would be in this full-time vocational ministry. And it's been so good for me. And that is because of the investment the King's Cross has placed in me. And I just want to say thank you for that. If you are a member of King's Cross, that is the expectation you should have. It is the desire of this church to help equip you and train you in the bent that God has given you that you can use ministry full-time however he calls you to do. And so I just want to say thank you, King's Cross, for investing in me and my family and allowing us to do that now at Light Park. That being said, we miss you. I do want to share a little bit about me. I think many of you will know some of my story, but I'd like to give you about a 30,000-foot flyover of me. I was raised in a family that uh, when the church doors were open, we were there. Uh, Early on, my parents even moved our family to the mission field where um, we lived for about four years as they served as missionaries. And, And shortly, not shortly after, when we came back shortly after that, Um, I recognized that there was a gap in my life. I recognized that there was sin. I was about nine years old and and that I wanted to have a relationship with Jesus too. And so I asked Jesus into my heart at at an early age. And and not only did I do that, I did one step further. I I said, I want to be a missionary one day too, like my parents. And so I came back and I sat with my parents and I conveyed that real conversation with them. And they, they asked some probing questions to make sure that there was some serity in that. And as best they could tell, they thought there was. And so I moved forward uh, with baptism about a year later. And that really was the beginning of my faith walk. From that point on, I was involved in every youth group activity there was. Like I said, if the church doors were open, we were there. Mom and Dad even forced me to be part of choir. I didn't want to do that, but that was part of it. And so I was doing everything I could. But, but something happened for me, and it was not the church's fault. It was more my own fault. I had relationships. I had friendships inside of the church, but I also had friendships and relationships outside of the church. And the older I got, the relationships outside of the church were the ones I was investing further and further with. And so by the time I got to college, I really didn't have a church network at all. And man, college was a disaster for me. I was running wide open in all the wrong directions. And when I really think back on my life, some of the greatest guilt I have were in those years. Because if you had asked my friends at that time, who here is a Christian, they would have pointed to me. They would have said, oh, Rogers is probably because they saw me pray from time to time. I even probably had a Bible sitting next to my bedside table. I went to church every now and then, probably more to satisfy calling my parents to let them know I'd gone to church than really seeking a relationship with God. 
You see, because the world was very attractive, and I wanted as much of the world as I could have, and I also, though, had this tension in me because the Holy Spirit had not let go of what that nine-year boy had, had given, and that was that I needed God, and I knew that, but man, I wanted the world too. Well, I graduated college and not much changed. If anything, I had a little bit more money to go do the things that I wanted to do. And so my roommate, fortunately for me, much like me, was floundering in his faith. And he said, you know, Rogers, I think we need to look for something outside of a casual Sunday. And I said, you know, I think you're right. And so I went to my senior pastor at the time and I said, hey, I'm looking for a Bible study. I need a Bible study. I don't see it here. And I, I need to get into the word. I need to be held accountable. And, and the truth is, I can't lead it. I need to be led. And so he looked at me and he said, I, I agree with you. And I think he agreed both that there wasn't a group and I couldn't lead it. And so um, he said, let's just pray about it. And in God's just awesome sovereignty, about two days later, I get a phone call from a guy I'd never heard of before in my life. And um, it's my now boss, Chad Moore, calls me some 20, 25 years ago. And he said, hey, I, I hear you're looking for a Bible study. And I said, yeah, it's a small group. He said, well, I'm willing to do it. I said, well, let me just tell you, when I say small, it's three of us, and, and you, that's including you. And he said, I'm willing to do it. And so once I knew I had a leader, I decided to start inviting people from work. And so I did just that. And by the time we launched, we had about 15 people that were going to come to this. And so I sat down with Chad before we started. I said, Chad, let me just tell you about what the sort of the, the, the group dynamics are going to look like, the best I can tell. I think a lot of people are going to be like me, not a lot, about 50% are going to be people like me, people that would claim to have a relationship with God, but they're not living it. They're not living that. But then the other group, the other 50%, they don't have a relationship with God at all. They're just sort of curious, and they're coming because I've invited them. And Chad said, I got the perfect book for you. I said, that sounds great. He said, it's a short book. I said, well, we're mostly engineers. That works great. He said, it's a book that's practical, and it has application in it. And he goes, Roger, for those people that don't have a relationship with God, it's going to give them an inside view of what it looks like to be a Christian. And for those that are Christians that are floundering, it's going to reset the foundation for them of what that is. I said, that is the perfect book. What is it? He said, it's the book of James. I said, Fantastic like I'd read it before. So anyway, we get into it, and we get to the first study, and we got into that verse like 1-2, chapter 1-2, it says, count all your trials as joy. And I said, man, this is, I like this. It doesn't make much sense to me, but I would like to figure out how to count my trials as joy. And so we started to talk about that, and all of a sudden, everything was going good until we got to the second chapter, the 14th verse through the 26th verse, which is where we are today. And I realized at that moment that James was written for me. And maybe, just maybe, it was written for you too. Let me read the text for us this morning. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. You foolish person, or you deceived person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word of God. Let me pray for us. Dear Holy Father God, I just um, thank you for your word. And I would pray today, God, that for those that might be here that are seeking what it means to have a relationship with you, would this word penetrate their hearts? Father, would it give them the vision that they need, Lord, to see what it means to walk a life with you? And Father, for those that call themselves Christian, Lord, for those that need to be convicted by this text, would it convict them and move them into action? And for those that, are, Lord, are, are living a life of, um, of action and faith, would this be an encouragement to them? Lord, speak to us where we are today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, a paradox in this scripture that I want to deal with right out the gate. I want to deal with it up front because when we get in the text, I don't want to have to deal with it. Um, and a paradox at the highest level is when there is a perceived contradiction that after further investigation, you realize it's valid or true. And that's what's happening here. If you look at this text, it would come across very much so that it's, it's heavy weighted in works-based. And it could be perceived that this is a works-based salvation message that James is giving. I mean, look at the text in verse 17. He says, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You go down to verse 24, and a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And at the surface, you can say that's a works-based salvation. But we know that there would be a contradiction in Scripture because we have people like Jesus and Paul that are saying other things. And Paul many times through his um, epistles say that, but especially in Ephesians 2.8, where he says it's for by grace you're saved in faith, not by works. So Paul is very much saying it's nothing you can do. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross that you have salvation. And so this perceived contradiction or this paradox is better understood of thinking like of Paul and James sort of bowing up, but they're not facing each other. They're, they're not wanting to fight each other off. And instead, they're standing sort of back to back, and the gospel is in the center, and they're protecting this gospel. Paul, on one hand, is looking out, and he's, he's seeing this legalistic view drift back into the church. You see, Jesus had come, and he had absolutely rewritten the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Because, see, the Old Covenant had created the sacrificial system. And the, 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 they realized there was sin in their life, and there was sacrifice after sacrifice. And Jesus came to say, I am the perfect sacrifice, and by no other means than the work I did on the cross, you are saved. And, and Paul is looking out, and he's seeing that even these Pharisees and some Christians are saying, no, it's, it's, it's that plus works. It's that plus circumcision, circumcision. It's that plus rituals. It's that plus certain diets. And Paul's saying, no, it's not that. On the other hand, you have James, and he's bowing up, and he's looking at the church, and they, he's seeing people that are claiming to be Christians, but there's no change in their life at all. I, he's bowing up to a 20-year-old Rogers Hook. He's saying, no, you can't claim to be a Christian and not it manifest inside of you in some form of action. And so he's fighting. We don't exactly know when James became a Christian. Um, we do know by the time he wrote this book, because y'all studied it in James 1.1, he describes himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He can't even utter the words brother. 
But at some point, he saw Jesus live, and he saw a life of sacrifice and a life of action. And James is sort of saying, no way, church. If you claim to be a Christian, I should see a change. Now, that being said, I do want to stop and, and say, if you're someone here that's sort of trying to understand what does it mean to be a Christian, I can get into this sort of paradox and back and forth. I don't want to do that. I want to very simply let you know what it means to be a Christian. And if you're somebody doing that, I would tell you to write this verse down, Romans 10.9, and I'd tell you to pray all over it. But Romans 10.9 says this, Paul says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. That is all it takes. And if you do that, I promise you two things will happen immediately. First, you will be promised eternity with God. Quite a promise. And secondly, your life will be changed forever. Or it should be, and that's what James is talking about. So this is going to get, that was a little long of an intro. I will bounce us through some of this, I promise. That gets us to the main idea of the sermon today. And the main idea of the sermon today is a genuine faith is a transformational faith. A genuine faith is a transformational faith. What do I mean by transformational? Very simply, it should require a change in you. A genuine faith has a changing faith that takes place. Let me take it out of the spiritual for a second and give you a very practical example. I have faith that my daughters are going to go to college one day. I hope they have that same faith. But because I have that faith, it changes the way that I think about their study habits today. It changes the way I look at their grades today. It changes the way that I think about how I spend my resources and what money I save because I have this confidence, this faith that they're going to go to college and therefore it's dictating today who I am. And that's, that's what James is saying in this text. And so to get into the first sort of bullet point, if you will, under the main idea is this, that a faith that does not work is not a genuine faith. A faith that does not work is not a genuine faith. Now, in preparing for this, I did a lot of study, and there are two people that I ended up um, sort of gleaning a lot from, John MacArthur and a guy by the name of Brian Hedges. They did a great job, um, I believe, especially in the front part of this text, sort of breaking it down into sort of bite-sized pieces that we can understand. Overall, what I think James does in these verses 14 through 26 is in the front half of it, he's going to tell us what faith is not. And so we're going to talk about that. But then on the back half, he's going to Tell us what faith is. And so he'll come around full circle. But the first thing that I think we see is that faith is not is what we call an empty confession. Look at verse 14 if you have your Bibles open. I would tell you to keep your Bibles open. I'm going to bounce into some of this scripture like this. But verse 14 says this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims... Now, if you're somebody that likes to circle words or highlight words or underline words in your Bible, I would suggest that you would underline the word claims. So what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? It might say, can that faith save them? Uh, outside of the King James, you're going to see either such or that show up. I would underline that word too. 
Why? Because what is James doing here? James is saying, I'm not talking about do you have faith or not. I'm talking about the kind of faith you have. Do you have a genuine faith? Right? And he's trying to point back to that. Can that faith save you? I remember growing up, mom and dad would always have my sisters and I come in to do these Bible studies. It was like, oh, man, here we go again. And dad would have like a seven-point illustration, probably weave in a poem or two. And so by the time we would get done with it, he would look at us and he would say, hey, do you all get it? And we would look blankly back at him like, yeah, we get it. Because if we said no, we were back in another 45 minutes of Bible study. And so what were we doing? Like whether we either either got it or not, were were we moving it down from this head knowledge into heart knowledge? No, we were just sort of giving an empty confession. Like we were just sort of trying to satisfy the moment. It wasn't transformational in our life. John MacArthur says it this way. The genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is evidence more by what a person does than what a person claims. I think John is in agreement with James here. The second kind of faith, or lack thereof, that we see in the text is a false compassion. Verses 15 through 16. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Man, y'all, I, I get this perception like James is like, I can feel like the anger coming out of the pens that he's writing this text down. Like, you see it, but you're not doing anything about it. I mean, remember, James was a half-brother of Jesus. He had seen how Jesus had lived. He's saying, you can't just see it and do nothing about it. I think if there is one complaint against the church today, it's this. You hypocritical group of people, you say this, but you're not doing anything about it. I mean, go to social media. Church, oh, you got your way around Roe versus Wade, but what are you going to do to meet the people's needs that are now in that? And I think if James were here, he would be saying the same thing. He would be saying, church, what are you doing about the needs of the people that you see? You can't just see it and talk about it. You've got to be doing something about it. Otherwise, it's nothing more than a false compassion. I think... Um, I think the parable of the two sons that Jesus uses in in Matthew is just a perfect example of this. If you remember that story, the the, the father comes, he's got two sons. The father comes to the son and the first son, he says, here, I need you to go do this work for me. And the son said, I'm not going to do it, just not going to do it. But after a little bit, he goes and does the work that the father had asked him to do. The father goes to the other son and says, listen, I need you to go do this task for me. That's the sudden, yeah, absolutely, I'll do it. But when it comes to time to do it, he never does it. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one of these sons did the will of the father? And they answered correctly, the one that did the work. See, Jesus is saying, just don't say it. We need to see it. What we do reveals who we are. What we do reveals who we are. The third kind of faith, again, or their lack of, that we see in here is what's called a shallow conviction. A shallow conviction. Look at verses 18 through 19. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. There are a handful of verses in Scripture that always scared me, and that's one of them. I think what James is saying in here is, you memorize the scripture? That's great. You go into Bible studies? That's wonderful. You got to be more than a scholar. 
Don't be a theologically deep observer. Be an active doer of theology, I think is what James is saying here. I remember um, when my wife uh, first told me that she was pregnant with our first daughter, Kate. And it was so exciting. We had a lot of fun talking to our family and our friends about this. Uh, we went to the doctor, and we got to see the, the, the baby on the screen, and I got to hear the heartbeat, and I had people telling me how my life was going to change forever and, and, and how I was going to perceive love differently. And I was just getting all this insight. I even read some books. But something happened completely different with my wife immediately. Upon her hearing that news or finding that news out, her life changed. She started to change the way she ate and the way she exercised. And all of a sudden, our house started to look different. And the room that we used to have as a guest bedroom changed colors. And certain furniture went out and other furniture went in. And pictures came down and other pictures went up. And I was told that this is called a nesting phase. And I'm telling you, she did everything but put some twigs in the corner of the room. It was unbelievable the change that I saw in my wife. See, she was nine months ahead of me. It was not until I actually held that baby and saw that baby that all of a sudden I started to understand what she was going through. See, I had the head knowledge. I had seen the baby. I had been told what it was going to be like. But my heart had not caught up with my head. It was nothing more than just a shallow conviction. And James is forcing us here today that would call ourselves Christian to ask the most important question you will ever be asked, and it's this. Is your faith real? Is your faith genuine? Or does it just look good on paper? Is it theologically orthodox? Is it an empty confession? Or a false compassion? Or a shallow conviction? And then he asked the question, as he did in the 14th verse, can that faith save? And the answer is a resounding no, it cannot. But he doesn't leave us there. He's going to tell us what kind of faith does save, which leads us to the second point of this sermon. And that is a faith that saves genuinely works. Not generally, genuinely works. A faith that saves genuinely works. And he's going to give us two examples. We're only going to talk about one this morning. Look at verses 21 through 22. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by his works. Again, if you like to underline text, I really like that back part of verse 22 that says, and his faith and his actions were working together. You see, a faith and works parallel each other is what James is saying. Faith and works parallel each other. If you have faith, all faith and no works, well, James would say that's not a genuine faith. On the other hand, if you have all works and no faith, well, that's just humanitarian work. And so he's saying faith and works parallel each other. I mean, at the point that Abraham is, is, is doing this monumental pinnacle faith-sized task here that James is using as an example, like I have to believe that Abraham really had no clue what was going to happen to his son Isaac as he carried his son, his only son, up on the hill to make a sacrifice. But he so had faith in the sovereignty of God that he was willing to follow through with the work that God had placed in him. And you see that works and that faith side by side justified him. And that's what James is saying, and that's what James would say to us. Now, 
it's worthy to pause for a second right here because this is pinnacle-sized faith right here. What Abraham's pulling off is huge. That's where we all want to be. But if you flip back a couple of pages in Abraham's life, he wasn't always there. He was blundering along the way. He was making mistakes. He didn't always have that kind of faith. And that's what we call at the church sanctification. It's the point of where you're justified in what Paul says. It's for by grace you're saved. So if you believe here, you're saved. But now your life's got to start looking different. And that's what James is saying. You're working towards this. And along the way, you're not who you were yesterday. Thank God. You know, and, and people are saying, they see that in you. Your wife says, man, he used to be so much more mean, but he's quicker to apologize. See, it's working itself out because of a life that has a, a, a changing, a transformational change that took place. So just church know that. That's why it's so important when the church tells you things like, hey, you need to be looking to others to mentor you. You need to be looking at giants ahead of you, that they are mentoring you along the way. That's what's happened to me all along my career and my life and my spiritual walk, and I thank God for my mentors. On the other hand, we need to be looking down. Who can we mentor? At any phase, there's somebody that's newer than we are, probably, and there's an opportunity for us to speak truth in their life, too. You see, it's a process, and that's what the church family does together. So, I want to leave you with sort of one parting action item, maybe, if you would. And the question is, how do I live a transformed life? You might say, okay, I hear you, Rogers. I'm either doing it if you are wonderful, or you're sort of floundering, and you're like, okay, well, what do I need to do? Are you telling me I need to be more involved in, in, in small groups? Or are you telling me I need to be out helping in some mission? And, and the answer is maybe, but that's not what I'm saying. I mean, maybe those are things you should be doing. No, no, no. The answer how to live a transformed life is very simple, and it's found in the 15th chapter of John, the fourth verse. And it says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This sounds like the answer to every sermon of all times, and it's because it probably is. You want to have a transformed life, you want to have a genuine faith, you've got to be abiding in Jesus. You've got to be spending time with Jesus. When you do that, you will see people differently. You will think about your words differently. You will look at your resources differently. Abiding in Jesus is the answer. One of the things I've been challenging the folks at Life Park with is to um, consider five people that they are already living life with, and to write their names of those five people in the Bible. And those five people are, are people that are either not in a relationship with Jesus, or they would claim to be Christians, but they're outside of the church. They're unchurched, and they're maybe not living a Christian life. And I've challenged them to do this. Pray for them daily. Pray for them daily. And one of two things will happen. One, you will have a conversation with that person. And it does not have to be, y'all are busy. Y'all are so busy. So I get it. So I'm not trying to create extra work. So I, you don't have to go out to do these people you're living with. It's somebody you're sitting in a pool with. And so all of a sudden, you're having a conversation with this person in the pool. And the person says something like this. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? Normally, you say, oh, we don't have any plans. But you've been praying for this person daily. And so you're in tune to what the Spirit is going to do in the moment. Your heart's fluttering because you have been praying for this person. And instead of saying, oh, no, nothing, you're going to say something like, Man, we are in this study in the book of James at our church. It is absolutely radically changing my life. 
and you're going to talk about that, and you're going to invite that person to church with you. Or maybe it's even deeper than that. But you will see that those conversation starters happen everywhere. And one of the most frustrating things, and this has just been for me as of recent, we make sharing the gospel or living that out is this awkward thing. It's really hard to do. It's not hard. We just have to do it. It's just who God's called us to do. He's transformed our lives. It's an opportunity for us to do the same by sharing. And so it's just living it out. You'll either do that and have that conversation with that person, or the other thing that you'll do, you'll stop praying for that person. Mark my words. You drop five names down in your Bible, start praying for them. You'll either have a conversation with them, or you'll stop praying for them. I was asked by one of the pastors at Life Park, um, he said, Rogers, what's your main goal of this sermon? And I really appreciated him asking me that question. And um, I think it's twofold. I think it's twofold. If the first one would be if, if somebody is genuinely seeking to know what a relationship with Jesus is like, I would hope that you got an inside view today and you heard clearly what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. The other side is, I hope this puts a burden in the church to live a life intentionally bent on serving Christ. That's, that's my main goal. I think that's what James is asking us. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you so much for the time I've had today, Lord, um, at King's Cross. I love this church, Father. I know you love this church. Father, would you just um, place a burden in this church and your big capital C church globally, Lord, that would help us live more on point, Father, um, the calling and the bent that you have placed in our lives. Father, that we could help be part about advancing your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.